0: We have here somebody with breaking news, and that's what it really is. This is Evan Osnos. I've been asked to introduce myself before I introduce Evan. So just to give you a thumbnail, I'm going to ask you, because you are a a correspondent for The New Yorker, have been for, what, a decade? Yeah, I've been at The New Yorker now for seven years. Seven years, and so you are a master interviewer. Just ask me something that will allow me to tell my biography in 60 seconds.
1: Well, if, if we were doing it in The New Yorker, approach, of course, I would have to say, Michael, tell me about your relationship with your father.
0: Uh, You know, my father was a stand-up comedian. He was. His name was Bobby Shields. And uh, he was a great stand-up comic. And he would work to rooms this size. He would work to rooms for 2,500 people. He would work to rooms for five people. And after every show, I figured out what the symbol was for my father. It was a sweat-soaked tuxedo shirt because he gave everything he had to every show. So that's my father. Uh, That's your lead in the story you are going to be doing about me in The New Yorker. Naturally. So Evan, introduce yourself and and tell us how you wound up in China and what you've discovered.
1: Well my relationship with my father was sound, fundamentally. (laughs) Oh, I think, um, I, you know, I got interested in China, actually, uh, I think it was, it was an accidental um, and enormously formative moment in my life. I was a teenager. I mean, I got to college, I'd had a normal American public school education, had never had any Chinese elements to it. You know, the world sort of stopped at the edge of Europe. Uh, and I got to college and walked into a class on contemporary Chinese politics. And it was absolutely electrifying. I mean, this was the story about civil war and revolution and these massive, protean, in many ways, sort of tragic figures like Chairman Mao. And then the story of Deng Xiaoping, who brought the country out of seclusion and into the world. And uh, this was in 1994. And I realized quite quickly that if I was going to do anything serious with China, that I had to learn the language. And so I started studying Chinese. and. Um, went to China for the first time in 1996. And I have to tell you, in 96 China was a very different place than it is today. I think there's probably people here who have been to China recently. Actually, I'm curious, if we have a show of hands, who's been to China in the last five years or so? So there's a fair number of people who have gone. I think in 96, to put it in perspective, you know, the economy in China was smaller than that of Italy. Um, The fanciest building in Beijing, when you really wanted to splurge and go out for a burger or something like that, you would go to a hotel called the Jengua Hotel. And the Jengua Hotel, the architect described it proudly as a perfect replica of a Holiday Inn that he had seen in Palo Alto, California. And China today has 40% of the world's skyscrapers under construction. And so I, I was sort of fascinated by that sense that the country was on the cusp of something very, very dramatic. And um, I worked elsewhere in the world. I was in the Middle East for a few years for the Chicago Tribune. And then eventually, the Chicago Tribune sent me to China in 2005. And I found this country transformed, completely transformed. And I, even physically going back to try to find the places I used to recognize. They were gone. They had been effaced. This is within a period
0: of 11 years, 1994 to 2005.
1: Yeah, it was less than that, because I'd been a student in 96 and in 98 in Beijing, all studying Mandarin. And so then I'd been gone for seven years. And in that seven-year period, the country had gone through the first iteration that would become this really dramatic. Just to put it in perspective, the Chinese economy doubled in size in that seven-year period, and then it doubled in size again in the next seven years, and it doubled in size again in the seven years after that. And um, What fascinated me, and I think what became really the center of my work and the center of this book, certainly, is what does it feel like to be a person, to be a Chinese person, caught up in that wave? I mean, to be caught up in that incredible sense of a force that is larger than you are, that is pulling you along, and you're just simply trying to stay afloat. And people feel it very, very viscerally, because um, you know, if in 1978, if you were a Chinese person, you made about $200 a year, and in, 19, in 2013, you made about $6,000 a year. But that wasn't distributed equally. It was wildly unequal. And it is wildly unequal.
0: So you talk about this wave, and your book opens with a story of a man who literally jumps into some dangerous waves, total leap of faith, sensing where history was going. Tell us about the Taiwanese captain named Lin.
1: Yeah, there's a guy who fascinated me. I kind of came upon this story um, without realizing what I was finding. I went to go interview an economist. And before I went to go interview this economist, people said, you know, you should... You should uh, get him to talk about his life. He's never really talked about it in a way, but he has a hell of a story. And um, so uh, roll your mind back to 1979. This is the point when China at this point was poor, desperately poor. In 1979, China had a smaller GDP than North Korea. Your average person in China at that point had a income on an individual basis that was one-third the level of sub-Saharan Africa. And this guy named Lin Zheng Yi, who was a young patriot in Taiwan, a guy who absolutely was like a true believer in the Taiwan cause. You have to remember Taiwan and the mainland China, they were at odds with each other in 1979. They had been for 30 years. They used to, you know, lob shells across the water between the Chinese mainland and this little tiny island called Jinmen in the West, uh, we called it Kimoi. You might remember there were these Kimoi crises in the 50s and 60s. It was called the, the, the Lighthouse of the Free World. It was the last bit of, uh, the, of, of the sort of Western Allied world up against the edge of China. And this young captain named Lin Zhang Yi was assigned, because he was such a true believer in the cause in Taiwan, he was assigned to be on that frontier. And he could look through his binoculars and literally see the mainland. And he was in charge of this unit and He began to get a sense in the end of 1978, the beginning of 1979, that history was about to pivot. And he sensed this. It was not a completely irrational idea, um, but it was pretty crazy. I mean, what he sensed was China is going to become the major economic player of our time. I'm a young, serious intellectual. Um, I need to be there. I have to get there. And this is what, you know. this book is called Age of Ambition because it is about the power of ambition in people's lives. And this guy got up in the beginning of 1979 and said, I'm going to get there no matter what it takes. And he had a wife, and he had a child, and he had another child on the way. And he betrayed them all. And he swam from this island across. It was about a mile and a quarter. And he swam to mainland China. And he, he, before he went, he said, you know, I'm going to be greeted as a hero because the Chinese had sent all these materials across, floated them across in these glass bulbs in the water that said, if you come, if you, if you betray Taiwan and come to China, you will be regarded as a hero. We will greet you. We will shower gold upon you. And he arrives, and the first thing that happens is that he's arrested. And I don't think I'm going to give away the whole story, actually, on what happened to Lin jong Yi, except to tell you that he changed his name, he devoted himself to the People's Republic more adamantly than almost anybody else ever had in an economic sense. He became the great spokesman of the Chinese economic story. And uh, and the rest is history, actually.
0: And, and that word ambition, age of ambition, I love the translation of that in Mandarin. Tell us about that and, and what that signifies.
1: I became very interested in this, in this word, in this idea. In Chinese, the word for ambition is Ye xin, which is literally wild heart. And to have a wild heart in Chinese, that was a terrible thing. Actually, it was a pejorative. Um, for most of Chinese history, if you were accused of having a wild heart, it could ruin your family. It could prevent you from getting jobs. Um, it could run you out of town. There was a great line in this old, uh, there's an ancient collection of advice for rulers in China called the Huainanzi. And it says in the Huainanzi, to keep power out of the hands of the ambitious just as you would keep sharp tools out of the hands of the foolish. And I've thought of this, by the way, living in Washington, D.C. a few times now. That... <laughs> but So this idea of ambition, which had been so distinct and fully formed for so long in Chinese history, it began to change in the time that we were living there. And all of a sudden you began to hear people talking about ambition in a neutral way. It was no longer that you were being accused of being wild-hearted. All of a sudden people would say, oh, he's a guy with a wild heart. And then all of a sudden it began to take on a positive connotation to the point that if you go onto Amazon's Chinese site today or you go into a Chinese bookstore, you'll find books there in the self-help aisles with titles like How to Have a Wild Heart in Your 20s and How to Mold a Child with an Untamable Personality and Wild Ambition. And there was this all of a sudden this sense that for so long Chinese society had been organized as a collective experience. You, know, you were always as an individual embedded in a group, embedded in a larger, whether it was the, you know, the village or the family or the factory or the military unit. And then in this period of the last 35 years, this period basically since the beginning of the economic reforms, all of a sudden people have been unfastened from those institutions and have been sent out to make their own way. And there was a, I pulled aside a headline from the newspaper that said, it is now up to you to blaze your own path and fight. And that's what it feels like in China today. It's this intensely competitive time.
0: So if the President of the United States called you in right now and said, Evan.
1: Is he calling right? I didn't, my phone, (laughs) oh, yeah, theoretical.
0: Well, he just tweeted, but but uh, if he were to say to you, look, I, I understand there are potentially more than a billion wild hearts in that country. Is that a good thing for us, a bad thing? How do we manage it? We're scared a little bit here in the United States about what the potential is for all those unleashed wild hearts. Should we be scared, or is it an opportunity?
1: I don't think we have the luxury of making a judgment about it in that sense. What we do have is a a responsibility to acknowledge what's happening and to understand it deeply. I want to tell you about a guy who I think is sort of, he is part of the reason why we worry about China today and its ambitions. Um, A few years ago, you remember around the time of the Olympics, when the Olympic torch was making its way around the world. it, It was traveling. Overseas, and as it went, the Olympic torch became a kind of magnet for protests of one kind or another, people who were concerned about Chinese policy on human rights or on religion. And there were protests, and then inside China, there was a backlash to those protests. And people, particularly young people, said, we're offended by the way the rest of the world is talking about China. This doesn't match our own image of this glorious country. You know, this is a, they would say, of course, this is a country that was printing books 400 years before Gutenberg. This is a country that had... You know, China controlled one-third of the world's wealth as recently as the 18th century. And so, you know, they've sort of had a bad couple hundred years as they see it. And they're in the process of returning to a position of that kind. And so when they saw that the rest of the world did not see them in those terms, it was really, it was wounding for many of these young people. So there was a video that went up on the Internet in the middle of this, in the Chinese web, which is this hugely interesting and dynamic space. And the video was very angry. It was a five-minute film, a kind of YouTube-style clip, in which uh, there was images of Chairman Mao, and there were slogans that said, the Western world is trying to encircle China. It's trying to hold China back, and we must stand up. China stand up. And that was the title called It was China Stand Up. and It became the second most popular video in China. I should say the first most popular was a blooper clip of some television anchor doing something foolish. And so it shows you some things are universal, I think. Um, and this clip became a sensation, and I wanted to know who had made it. And so I got in touch with the guy who was responsible for it. And I didn't know anything about him, I just had his initials, is how he had signed it. And I was a little bit concerned before I went. It was a very, very tense time in Beijing. I'd gotten a message in my office, a fax, actually. had come across the fax machine that said, clarify your understanding on China, or you and your family will wish you were dead. So it was a really angry moment. and. Um, before I went down there, I told friends, you know, I'm going down to meet this guy in Shanghai. If you don't hear from me, that's something. I was a little proud of being able to say that. It was sort of in a stage whisper, you know. I'm going to Shanghai. And so then uh, I go down there and um, he was not who I thought he was. I mean, I had this image of a guy who was trapped in his parents' basement in this sort of proverbial isolation that we imagine of people who are so angry. And he was uh, first thing he did when I arrived actually was try to pay for my taxi fare. And um, his name is Tang Die. And he was dressed basically the same way I am. You know, he's wearing a khaki pants and a, and a Oxford shirt. And he was studying Western political philosophy. And he spoke English and German. And he was studying ancient Greek and Latin. And he was a PhD student. And I said, "What is your uh, what's your dissertation on?" He said, "Well, my dissertation is on." phenomenology in the work of Edmund Herschel. And he said, are you, are you familiar with phenomenology in the work of Edmund Herschel? I was like, of course, of course, I'm very familiar with it, naturally. All Americans are very familiar with the work of, of Herschel. And, um, and w- what was fascinating was that it was, he was not angry out of ignorance. He had discovered that there was a message that he wanted to get across. And what I realized, I started spending a lot of time with Tang Jie and his friends over the course of the next few years. And he was in a community that's known in Chinese as the angry youth, fencing, which is they are angry and they are privileged and they are, they have a sense of possibility. And you know, he was the first guy in his family to ever go to college. His parents were farmers who couldn't read or write. And so he had this sense that he'd been given this immense opportunity in, in the period in, in which he was living and he was going to he was going to enact that, and he was going to live that out as much as he, as he could. The one thing I would say, the reason why we might worry is that the message that they're expressing is very angry. But I think it, what we find is that when we actually sit down and begin to unpack what it is that guys like that are talking about, there's a lot more to it. And it's not simply that they are um, seeking to remove the United States as in the position that it has in the world, it's actually more about their own sense of what they can do in China and what they can't do. So I would often find, for instance, that a lot of the guys who would agree with Tang Jia, I would go out to these protests where they'd be protesting in the street against the United States or against Japan, and at first they would say, down with Japan or down with the United States or some version of that. And then you would scratch the surface a little bit and say, well, what is it that you're angry about? And they would say, well, I'm also frustrated that I can't get a job and I'm frustrated that I can't buy an apartment. And nationalism and anger towards the West is an available vocabulary for people. And so there's a lot of opportunistic, um, opportunistic nationalism.
0: And then there are the people you profile in your book who are not fueled by that anger, but just some inner drive that is almost incomprehensible. And one of the women you talk about who comes from this peasant stock, but was always determined to get an education and a severe injury almost ended that education. She didn't let it stop her and she found her way into the big city as a lonely woman who wanted love as well as material success. You've got to tell us a little bit about this woman because if there are more of her in that country, boy, we, we have a lot to learn.
1: She's fascinating, and in some ways, she's almost some of, one of the most un- unlike American character uh, people that I've sort of spent time with. And yet also there was qualities about her that struck me as so incredibly American that she could have been out of the 19th century, and I'll tell you exactly what I mean. So this woman, Gong Haiyan, grew up in a village in, in, at the foot of a mountain, and she, her parents couldn't read or write again, and you know, they said, you're going to live your life basically in a similar way that we live ours, and she was just not wired that way. I mean, she, she, you have to remember, too, she was growing up in this period in which China was at peace, it was more prosperous than it had been before, and for her the idea was that she had to get somewhere and she could get somewhere so she as a kid actually she was in a terrible accident she was riding a tractor and it tipped into a ditch and she was injured and it cut her face and, and she had a terrible leg injury and um, I should just to wonder if you want to understand sort of the grit that is part of Chinese life these days after she had this terrible leg injury she had been admitted beforehand to this terrific school the best school around And after she had this, she was in a a huge cast all the way up to here. And the school said, you know, I'm sorry, you can't take your place in school because you're not going to be able to walk up the stairs. And her mother said, no, that's not going to happen. And her mother said, I'm going to carry my daughter on my back. And she carried her around campus, and she moved into a room with her, and she... uh, would carry her to the bathroom and back. and I thought when, when Gong Haiyan first told me this story, I thought it was sort of a metaphor. I sort of sounded too much like a fable. So then when I met her mother, I said, you know, you didn't really carry her on your... And she said, oh, yeah, the fifth floor was the worst. That's where chemistry class was. I hated chemistry class. So Gong Haiyan goes to the city and uh, she gets a terrific education. She goes to graduate school in Shanghai and she realizes that she has a problem, which is that the only people who she can sort of meet in the course of trying to find her mate in life is uh, other people who her parents have access to because she's a migrant to the city. She's not tapped into all these kinds of networks. And her parents only had access to people like them, farmers who could not read or write more or less. And she said, who is gonna help me? I have to help myself. And so she, uh, actually first thing she did was she signed up for a local dating service and paid her uh, the equivalent of about $50 and they sent her a list of names and photographs and she started calling and she realized very quickly that she'd been scammed that these were fake dates they were somebody had put a photo with a name and it was just a composite and she called up the company and she said why would you scam me like this why would you cheat me and they said well it served you right look at yourself you shouldn't be going after these these high quality men that was the way they described it and this offended her deeply in a way that I think previous generations would have had a harder time imagining that they deserved to be offended. But she'd grown up in this time in which you had this distinct sense that you deserved more in life. So she started a company. She started the Chinese match.com. And when I met her, she was just out of graduate school. The company was just starting.
0: And this was what, what year was this? 2006. So the internet wasn't in full swing at that no, point. No, it was what? just
1: beginning. It was, to the, it was so basic, actually, that people would actually mail in their photographs by post which I loved, by the way, because you're mailing it in by post, and then you're hoping to be found online. I thought that was a kind of optimism. And then, so what was happening was that people all of a sudden had choice in parts of their lives that they hadn't had choice before. They don't have choice in their political lives, but they have choice now in their private lives. And we can talk about that tension in a second, but I think it's worth recognizing just what that means in their private lives. And all people embraced, all of a sudden, the opportunity to choose their mates. So in the past, you know, the village matchmaker would have lined you up They would have said, okay, your two families are fairly similar in your financial background or your political background, off you go. And the bride and groom had very little involvement. Now, all of a sudden, you could define who it was you wanted. And so they were, I started keeping these online personals ads that people would place. And they would say, not just, for instance, they would say, you know, never been what i'm seeking would be and this is a specific case of a woman from Wuhan who i'm thinking of named Lin Yu she was in graduate school and she would say i'm looking for somebody who's never been married no gamblers no smokers height over 5 foot 7 no taller than 5 foot 9 making an income of more than 50,000 yuan per year willing to guarantee eating four dinners at home each week with a track record of at least two ex boyfriends but two ex girlfriends but no more than four and then no. That's burgers. me. Yeah. Well, I. Could, yeah. <laughs> I'll put you in touch. <laughs> so she started. Anyway, Gong Haiyan started the company. By the time I left China, she'd made seventy-seven million dollars.
0: So. Uh, <laughs> well, it almost leaves you speechless because she's not the only one who's done something well, like that. So you know, we know. Who's she living with right now, by the way? Well, so she. Um,
1: I, I really will put you in touch, Michael. I think. Um, I think. No, you know, the thing about it, she met her own husband uh, on, uh, on the site, and he was a researcher who specialized in research on fruit flies, and the first thing she did when she met him was that she gave him an IQ test, and then she said she was satisfied because he beat her by two points and nobody had ever beat her before. And um, by the way when she made 77 million dollars he quit his job studying fruit flies he's found other pursuits that are more urgent for him but you know one thing I do want to say is I think sometimes we get a caricature of China looking at it from far away that it's either this place where everybody's riding a bicycle you know wearing a blue cotton suit or it's a place where everybody's a new tycoon like that and the reality is she's thoroughly atypical you know when you're deciding who to write about you, you make judgments about who am I going to write about who is living an ordinary, typical life, and who am I going to write about that's living a flamboyantly atypical life? And you have to account for both. And she is somebody who, in the qualities of her life and the dynamics that have driven her, I think tells us a lot about China. But she's an outlier just as much as any internet tycoon is in the United States.
0: So before we open it up to the audience, uh, so that's one great love story. Mm. Another great love story happened in the, in the course of your reporting. And it happened to you. And it didn't take that woman's website. How did it happen? Did you just hang around China until the right <laughs> woman crossed your path?
1: I, I did. And uh, my wife is from the exotic province of Newton, Massachusetts, I should say. That's Sarah Beth Berman, who's sitting right there, who will be... Way too polite. She won't do that. She won't wave anything. So, <laughs> Sarah Beth uh, came to China planning to be there for a year. She was on a scholarship called the Luce Scholarship, Henry Luce Scholarship. And uh, we met right after she got there, and, uh, and we didn't go home for another seven years. So, I really screwed up her plans. Um, but I, in seriousness, I think there, was, there is something about the experience of being there that is it's very self-selecting the people who choose to go to China these days are drawn by this sense that it is an incredible, incredible moment. And it's not particularly easy. It's not very pleasant. I mean, it's not not comfortable to live You tell us
0: in the book, I mean, it basically, throughout the night, 24-7, seven days a week, it was so vivid, the way you described it, constant jackhammers, constant construction noise. Yeah. All the time.
1: I lived in a building that had been designed with soundproof windows because they knew that the building would be surrounded by construction for most of its usable life and they were right I mean it really was and you would sort of see the the light of the blow torches off the windows at
0: night. And so as we open it up to questions it's like if we were in China now because you could use a little water so I'm gonna pour you some water and I'm gonna ask you, if we were in China and somebody were pouring you water from a pitcher like that, would you feel comfortable drinking it? Because we know what's happened to the environment in that country without any regulations.
1: After seven years, you start to drink just about anything. But in the, in the beginning, you're very careful. You think, you know, take the lettuce off that salad. And uh, um, But by the end, you know, if it's not actually giving you a facial twitch while you're drinking it, it's probably okay. Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play It at play.it.
0: You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. So l- l- let me open it up to the audience if somebody has a microphone, and I'm sure there are a lot of questions, and I see one hand going up already with the young woman in the purple shirt, so. Uh... Hey, uh, I was just wondering how do
1: you approach surveillance of uh, reporters is How has that changed Yeah it's a good question. It's uh, it is a tense time to be a reporter in China these days. Over the course of the last five years it's gotten stricter and they have become much more um, the Communist Party's become much more aggressive about monitoring what we do and and trying to punish people who talk to us and help us. It was a you know just as a as a practical matter Um, it's odd because actually we have more access to the country than we've ever had in terms of being able to navigate it. You can get on a plane in the morning in Beijing and you can be halfway to Tibet by lunchtime Um, but then there are parts of the country that are off limits to us. So we're not allowed to go to Tibet we're not allowed to go I I should be specific actually. You're not allowed to go to the autonomous region of Tibet you can go to Tibetan cultural areas which are in neighboring areas and that's important to distinguish because you can still write about what it's What's going on with Tibetans by going to these other areas? Um, you can't go out to much of Xinjiang province out in the far west, which is the home of the Uyghur minority, which has become a source of real unrest in recent months. And then, as a, I mean, as an odd artifact of this period was that I got, you know, I would get a, a message from Gmail from Google saying um, we have reason to think that you're email inbox is being compromised by state-sponsored hackers, that was the message that came across the top. And by the way, you know, the, the way things go, that immediately became a status symbol. Everybody got, you had to get the, you know, oh, you haven't been warned? Well, I'm sure your work is really important anyway. But, <laughs> and, um, but I actually reverted to pen and paper in a lot of cases. There were people who I would no longer feel comfortable putting a name in a laptop or putting a name in a phone. I would never, uh, if I had contact information from people, particularly uh, Tibetans or human rights activists who were acutely sensitive and under great personal threat, I kept that entirely in the 19th century in that way. It was odd, you know, and you had to go back to keeping things locked in drawers on pen and paper.
0: Yes, sir. By the way, Wendy Hudson with the microphone, Nantucket's chief bookseller. And Wendy, how many steps away is your one great independent bookstore, Nantucket Bookworks, from Mitchell's Bookstore? <laughs> where else? Where else are there two great independent bookstores that close to each other? Just wants to say. And can that. I
1: say just? Yeah, here, here. And what, can I say one special thank you to Wendy too? Because you know when this, when I was writing this book about three years ago when this festival was beginning, Wendy said, you know, here's a motivation for you. When you finish your book, you can come to Nantucket. And I said, now that's a great motivator. So <laughs> thank you to Wendy and to the festivals for a fabulous, fabulous weekend. Thank you so much. 60 Minutes is a story on these skyscrapers that you mentioned in China. If they're China. Is there a middle class in China to fill them up? Yeah, there is. It's, Those buildings, which are sometimes known as ghost cities, they are real, they exist. And yet they're also um, part of the picture and and not the full picture. And part of the challenge of understanding the Chinese economy is that it has these multiple speeds that coexist. So you'll see that in cases like that, there has been this overinvestment, overbuilding, overheated development. And then in other places, there are big cities in China I mean, Beijing and Shanghai, for instance, one third of the people who live in those cities do not have a, their own kitchen or toilet. There are today 80 cities over population of two or three million, I think it's two million, that does not have a subway. So there is still room to run on that score. So if you look, for instance, HSBC has calculated that China's capital stock today is roughly equivalent to the United States in about 1930. So you've got this incredible, you've got these these you know, what have been terrible misallocation of resources in some ways. And yet there, are, there is this still enormous middle class growth ahead. And the question I think for those of us who look at the economy and try to figure out is this place going to continue growing or how much can it continue growing um, is whether or not they can get those kinds of bad planning decisions under control. Because it's, it's not at the moment, they have not actually satisfied the demands for, for potential growth in people's personal lives the middle class is just beginning at this moment. You know, there's about 250 million people in the middle class in China, slightly smaller than the population of the United States. Um, But, uh, you know, it's really just at the beginning of that story. So, I actually don't think of the problem being, is there there going to be uh, enough demand out there? It's, can they allow market forces to determine where they should build, when they should build, and what they should build?
0: I just want to say, so you, you mentioned the idea of the collapse building and the corruption and the rush to develop, and, and often with substandard conditions. And I know, you know my family and I, we have a hard time buying anything made in China that is going to go into our bodies because we don't trust it. And I get the sense from the stories in your book that one of the reasons we can't trust it is they feel they have this unique opportunity and time. All these years, their wild hearts have been locked up and they are gonna rush to get what they want, forget regulations, forget any standards, is, is there, is, should we be worried about what we consume from China because of that?
1: I mean, I think we should be, as consumers, we should be vigilant. I think we should be, uh, we should be aware of it. But I wouldn't, I'm not reflexively suspicious of products from China. After living there and after burrowing into all kinds of cases of, of uh, substandard production. I mean the project that I worked on at the Chicago Tribune that won the Pulitzer Prize was about was about substandard products being sent from China to the United States and yet I have to tell you that I over the years I've become a little more uh, confident in the quality of the stuff that's coming out because I think it depends what you get but um, yeah I mean if something is priced too good to be true uh, it probably is. But a couple of things that are, I think if you want to understand why it's happening one is that fundamentally the institutions have not caught up with where China's economy is today. So, I mean, on the most basic level, the inspection regime at the, um, you know, for Chinese ports has no ability to actually inspect things for quality. The Food and Drug Administration is, is, um, is ill-equipped to be able to, the Chinese Food and Drug Administration, totally ill-equipped to be able to police for quality. And on top of it, and this is where we get into a political question, the system as it's constituted today is not designed fundamentally to be resistant to corruption. It's, there's no oversight function, there's no accountability, there's no way to, in the end, throw the bums out. And so, as a result, that's why you get these incredible, almost spectacular acts of of corruption and uh, improper abuse of government. And this is, this is what we're seeing right now. The Chinese government is in the midst right now of under, it's, it's in the midst of an anti-corruption campaign that is larger than anything in 40 years, and yet I also think in the end it's completely inadequate because at the center of it is that you've got a system that does not police people from using whatever access to power that they've got to be able to get ahead in the world. And that's what you need, and that's, eventually they're gonna reach a point, this is not predicting political change, but they're gonna reach a point where they realize that for our, if we want our economy to continue growing the way it is, and they need that in order to have, in order for China's rise to continue, Then they need to come up with a way to uh, strengthen the institutions, the courts, um, the auditing functions in society. You know, they have to, you know, allow contracts to actually have some value in Chinese life, intellectual property, and they're not there yet. And um, this is, I think, uh, in some ways, a larger obstacle to their future success than just about anything else. Uh,
0: I see a gentleman in the blue and white striped shirt, and then we'll. Uh, with regard to international relations between China and the surrounding Southeast Asian countries, China seems to want to take over all of Southeast Asia, developing their navy, getting their area, spending all sorts of money, and yet they are antagonizing everybody in Southeast Asia. Are they really thinking about that for the future?
1: It's a great question. And it's, you know, you've seen in the news recently that China's gotten into a growing conflict with Vietnam, for instance, over contested territory in the South China Sea and with Japan in the East China Sea. And I think we need to prepare for more of that in the years ahead. They are um, pursuing claims, what they consider to be historical claims, with much more aggression than they have in the past. And there's a couple of reasons for it. One is that As the economy slows down, and it is slowing down, it's just a demographic fact, China today has more people over the age of 65 than under the age of five for the first time in its history. This is a result of the one-child policy. And what that means is that you no longer have this enormous dividend of youth labor available to work in the factories as there used to be. And so the years of 10 percent growth are finished. They're gonna have probably 7.5% growth this year, but it's gonna continue to go down, and as it goes down, they're gonna need to rally people in other ways. And one of the ways that they rally people is around a great sense that China is returning to its historical position in the world, the position that it held for most of human history, which was as the dominant civilization in Asia. And so the Chinese leadership, Xi Jinping and his peers have been um, willing to sacrifice what had been a dominant diplomatic priority, which was, to be, they wanted soft power. That's been much of the conversation for the last 10 years. Today, soft power is secondary. The truth is they've decided, much like the United States, when it was, establishing its own security environment when it was a growing power, we're going to do the same thing. And we're going, to set, we're going to try to set the rules of the road. The one thing I would say that's different, perhaps, in the way that you talked about it was that I don't think that they actually see themselves as an expansionary power. And I think it's important to distinguish that because they don't have an ideology, for instance. We often make comparisons these days to Germany on the cusp of World War I or World War II and, and, and China today or um, the Soviet Union. China fundamentally is not seeking to export its political system to other places. It doesn't, it doesn't see that as a priority. What it does see as a priority is steadily uh, eroding American power in the Asia Pacific. And this is the crux of the problem, is that we are a Pacific country. The President has said we're going to be a Pacific country through the rest of the century. We are not in the position of removing ourselves from Asia. And so what we need is a real conversation how is this going to work. China and the United States have got to figure out an accommodation for each other. Um, it, we can't drift in the direction of conflict. I think it, you know, the one sort of takeaway often that I have for myself about this is, and living in Washington, is that if I'm prioritizing things that I care about when I'm talking to a congressman, one of the things I say is we've got to sit down and have a serious conversation about our relationship with China. Not saying that we need to be giving things away. I actually believe we should be tough on on standing up for our own interests. but. Let's not pretend this is not gonna be an issue. This is probably gonna be the defining diplomatic issue of our time. Uh,
0: I'm I'm gonna pick on my daughter. Wait, um, the lady with the leg injury did since she had so much money, did she give like, back to her in
1: the hospitals in the area? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um she you mean did she give money to them like as a donation? Yeah. Um I don't know what she's done philanthropically. And um one thing I do know is sort of interesting is that she has, because she got rich so fast and because she came from so little, she's very aware of what that does to people's lives. And so Chinese people, a lot of them who have made a lot of money very fast are struggling with the question of what do I do with it? How do I become a member of society that is making a lasting contribution? Because in America, after all, you know, our great universities and libraries and so on oftentimes were the results of great gifts. And China's just at the very beginning of that process, and they haven't figured it out yet. Um, But I think in the years ahead, you're gonna start to see people realizing, okay, once I have a golden replica of myself to meet me at the front
0: door, now what? (laughs) Yes, uh, woman in the glasses right there. (laughs)
1: yeah there is and it's you know it's especially acute because after all China today is still the people's republic and it is ruled by a communist party and so on a rhetorical level and on a theoretical level it sees itself as still a country that is governed by Marxist Leninist principles when the truth is you step outside of that of that for two seconds and you discover that the country today has a gap between rich and poor that is one of the highest levels in the world. In fact, the difference between China's richest places and its poorest places is the difference between New York and Ghana. And so there is this incredibly acute sense of a gap. And I'd say if you're making a list of the issues that the Chinese government worries most about at night, it's that they worry that they have, uh, they have not fulfilled their end of the bargain, and their bargain was laid out by Deng Xiaoping, who said, very famously, he said, let one group of people get rich first, and then everybody else will follow. It was kind of a Chinese trickle-down economics. And the problem was, they did get one one group of people rich first, like Gong Haiyan and others, and now the question is, is there still a sense of opportunity? And in the book, what you, certainly what I describe is, there is a very distinct sense that that opportunity has narrowed and it's created enormous, enormous uh, political, latent political energy. And that's a source of potential unrest.
0: Sarah, Sarah Oktai. Thank you. Um, i taught in China for a month in 1994, all over China, um, for trade chemistry And all it, you know,
1: Yeah, they've done a huge construction boom on universities and vocational schools over the last 15 years to the point, I mean, they've actually substantially increased the potential enrollment. I went to a school, for instance, out on the, I was taking, I was doing a long walk. I spent about a month walking in Sichuan province and um, one day I came across in the middle of the, basically in the middle of the fields, there was this brand new university that had gone up almost overnight. And, um, you know, they had thrown up dormitories and thrown up university buildings. They didn't yet even have that one phone. <laughs> and uh, they asked to borrow my cell phone at one point. And um, they had yet to open, but they were about to open. But even with all of this construction, and, and some of it has been much more sophisticated. I mean, now if you go, for instance, China now today has yeah, it has at least two universities in the top 50 in the world. and. I say that, you know, that sounds not very impressive because actually for a country of its size and wealth it should be moving up faster. What they don't have is the software. You know, they don't yet have a faculty that's got the kind of commitment to academic values and honesty. That's a real problem. So
0: let's, here's the wave. We got an export opportunity here because I read in your book that uh, two headmasters, former headmasters from two of the leading American uh, prep schools have gone over there and been hired and paid good dollars to create to basically recreate what was it Choate and
1: uh yeah I think it was yeah it was Chote. I, I don't remember the other one but and they're so starting something a yeah.
0: lot of us parents are very afraid now because as we read in your book the upper echelons of the Chinese of Chinese society they want to send their kids here they've got the grit they've got the grades they've got the attitude and they've got the money to pay full tuition What's, what an educational consultant told us once that if, if our private schools want to fill every single seat with a qualified full-paying Chinese student they could they don't because we want the diversity and I'm thinking what well, from what you're saying but they are building their own schools maybe there's a way to flip that do we have enough teachers should that be our way that we create calling all teachers go to China build their educational system what an opportunity I mean I, I there is I'm asking for an investment. Yes, from well, I'm head. glad you asked here
1: in this setting. I think that's appropriate. I think the. Um, you know, I think what's funny about it is that actually they have huge admiration for what we do as American institutions. In, for instance, China's president, Xi Jinping, his daughter is studying at Harvard under a pseudonym right now that tells you about the kind of underlying respect that there is still for what we do in the classroom. And I think it's it's partly, you know, we talk about tiger moms and, and the idea that every Chinese student is this, getting an 800 on the SATs and, you know, it's overstated, but it is, um, but there is actually in the realm of education an opportunity for, for, interactions of the kind that I think are essential to the future of this relationship. Because you know every Chinese kid that comes to the United States, every American kid who goes to China, becomes a very different player in the future of that relationship. And so I'm just incredibly in favor of programs that send Americans abroad, whether to teach or to be students, um, or programs that bring Chinese students to the United States because it's transforming. It transformed me. It transformed a lot of the people that I know. And it becomes the basis for a much, much more knowledgeable understanding of each other.
0: That's, uh, I think, uh, I'm going to ask a final question from Bill Sherman, a former neighbor of mine and good friend, whose daughters spend time in China, correct? Correct. So I know you have a relevant follow-up here.
1: There is um, become, in recent years, a greater sense that China wants to hold on to some of the things. They, they would face entire cities, neighborhoods, really. Though I have to say, you know, and I'm somebody who's, who's a great fan of Chinese historical structures. My wife and I lived in a courtyard in the center of Beijing, and some of our friends would look at it and think, why do you live in this old Chinese courtyard? You could live, Chinese friends would say, you could live in a beautiful apartment in, in the air. You're making a terrible mistake. And we just have a slightly different regard for it. I think there's two reasons. One is that just as, a, as I mean, the truth is that philosophically, in many cases, um, in China, people will feel that if you can rebuild a structure, a new structure, more beautiful, uh, you know, new paint, why wouldn't you do it? That's great. And um, then there is also an element which is, no, they are just moving too fast. And, and there's not the institutions that prevent impulsive decisions, but I'll tell you one thing that they do get when they come to places like Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, for instance. I know a story of a guy who was a tycoon in China who came from nothing and made so much money so fast, he built a, an apartment. He lived on the 14th floor, and he, or he was high up in the air, maybe the 6th floor or something, but he built an elevator to bring his sports car up to his apartment. And once he had done that and he realized, you know, I have all the money in the world, then he said, "Now well, what am I going to do with it?" And he met somebody who lives in Martha's Vineyard, and um, he said, "Let me take you to, let me take you to the United States and just show you a different way to live." And he took him to Art Basel, and he talked to him about art, and he took him to, um, he took him up in a biplane over Martha's Vineyard, and the guy threw up, but had a fabulous time. <laughs> had a fabulous time, and he loved it. And he just said, "That's that's the kind of a richer life uh, in the sense of." you know being a little bit more connected to my environment so I think that's we have a pretty good story to tell in the United States
0: let me uh, just a final comment on my side first of all I just want to uh, uh, thank some people the, the the major sponsors of this book festival uh, Wendy Schmidt who has been integral to not changing the face of Nantucket protecting the face of Nantucket uh, Nantucket Island Resorts which we all know fogged in bookkeeping which I never knew about until I looked at their website. You gotta check them out. Uh, Nantucket Book Partners, Annie's Whole Foods, which I think we should export to China, N and Magazine, and, and Mary Haft. And so they're all of our key sponsors. And the final thing I'd like to say is, you know, I have this thing, I don't know if you've seen any of these, uh, these signs out there with books on the benches and stores, steal this book. And I had this idea, it's like nobody steals books, but they're so valuable. And so I, I wanna ask all the authors, if there were, Put your humility, your humility aside. Why would your book be so valuable? It could be worth stealing. What would we get out of it? I think. And it, please don't steal and Buy them <laughs> and leave them out. But.
1: Um, I think I think it will help people in the United States sleep better at night, and uh, in the sense that we will know more about this place that looks so forbidding to us from far away. And I'm not pretending that this is an easy relationship. I'm not pretending that the Chinese people love everything we do and we should love everything they do. But we have, a, we have a moment, we have an opportunity to understand what it actually feels like in their lives in a way that we never have before because of the access to the country. And what I found was that from far away, we look at it and we say, oh my God, this world's second largest economy. It's one fifth of humanity. And when you get there, you discover actually that the conversations around the dinner table and the things that people talk to you after you've known them for five or 10 years are very, very familiar to us. And they're universal, all things. And I think um, that, in the end, should be a source of of comfort.
0: Evan Osnos, uh, the, The Age of Ambition.